Hey guys, it's the Covenant Courses Podcast. This is Weston Brown, and we're nearing the end of this course called Logos Foundations of Effective Bible Study. And today what we're going to do is we're going to flesh out this entire inductive Bible study method by looking at two separate passages of Scripture, one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament, and doing the work of observation, interpretation, and application um, as we look at them. And so um, thanks for joining us today. I hope this is helpful to you. As always, be sure to check out the course syllabus in our show notes. And um, let's go ahead and get into this week's conversation on how the inductive method comes together. Today, what Taylor and I are going to do is we're going to dig into um, a couple of passages of Scripture, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament, and we're going to explore how the inductive method sort of plays out from the beginning point where we're just reading the text all the way to the end where we're trying to apply it to our lives. Um, so, Taylor, along the way, what have you... Um, what have you personally gleaned from this, if anything? Are there any new thoughts or practices or ideas that you've applied to your own Bible study? You know, I would say personally, what we talked about on the step of application most recently was great for me because it was a good reminder, one, to do that work even if there's not, even if you're not in a specific season of life where there's an application right now. Yeah. Um, just to continue doing that with anytime you're reading, anytime you're studying scripture, um, and almost kind of to tuck that away or to be able to come back to it. Yeah. Part of that was important for me because as I mentioned, it's been a more neglected step in this process for me lately, but it's also just important because I tend to like those first two steps more. And some of that may be, uh, the sanctification comes in when you apply scripture to your life. So I I really I really enjoyed discussing application, discussing how it works, and I'm looking forward to maybe doing some more of that both today as well as in the future and mm. trying to trying to put more rubber on the road as yeah. it were. Yeah. So these two passages that we're going to look at today are uh one is um they're both pretty well known. Yeah. Um one is uh not controversial. The other is potentially controversial. Potentially, um, that's being generous. <laughs> but but even even just saying that means we are coming to the text with some presuppositions. Yeah, and we do that unconsciously, um, especially those of us who have grown up in the church or who have been around the church for some period of time. We come to the Bible with certain preconceived notions about it. So whether it's this passage in Jeremiah or it's the passage in Ephesians we're going to look at in a little bit, um, it's quite possible that when you hear us re just read these passages that your brain is going to immediately start firing on uh, either I think I know what that means or here's what that means for my life or here's what that should mean for my life um, or here's what this means about God or something like that. And... What I want us to take notice of is that is not coming from a place of Bible study, 
right? Right. It's coming from a place of connection to or immersion in Christian culture and the church. Now, that doesn't mean that you're wrong, but it means that you have to realize that the things that you hold to may potentially not be coming from a place of you having studied the text and thus arrived at those notions, right? right? They come more from a place of you, uh, I heard a sermon on this one time, or I listened to a podcast on this at one time, and again, that it's not to say that you are wrong. Mm-hmm. It's it's to say we want to come to the text as much as possible with sort of a clean slate, um, even though it it is not entirely possible. We want to come to the text as if we've never read it before. Yeah, as if we have no preconceived notion about what it means or what it's about or how it should apply to our lives. And I think it's when we're able to do that a little bit more authentically. I think we have the, a greater opportunity to really glean some things from it. Yeah. So that's the second time I've used the word glean in this podcast. See if you can go for a third. I know, man. We got to get some more farming <laughs> metaphors in here. Well, we can switch up our first passage. Let's find something with farming. <laughs> no, I, I love what you said, though, about uh, it's not necessarily that you've got the wrong takeaway from a verse. And I think that's something that we'll probably see with our first our first choice here. Our first reference is going to be Jeremiah 29, 11. And again, if you've got some preconceived notions or if you've heard something and there's, there's a specific way that you tend to apply Jeremiah 29, 11 to your own life, it may not be wrong, but what we're doing here is making sure it's for the right reasons, mm-hmm. right? This is kind of like when you showed when you had to show your work yeah, on your yeah. elementary school math tests and it's because you could get the right answer for the wrong method. That's right. This We're, we're kind of doing some of that today. Yeah, and, and and a part of this in, in that same vein is helping all of us have the tools we need to do the work of exegesis and application in our daily life as we're reading the Scriptures. Yeah. So, um, okay, well, how about this? How about I read our first text, um, and then, Taylor, why don't you take the reins and... Um, Let's start with observation, mm-hmm. just observing the passage. And I'd encourage you where you are uh, to, to grab a Bible or pull up your Bible app, um, whatever you like to use. Go to Jeremiah 29, 11. We're going to be reading out of the ESV, um, but you could read this in another translation. I think probably what will be most helpful if you're following along with us is to read from the same translation. Um, but let me read this to us, and then we'll observe, we'll interpret and then throw out some possible application points. So, um, Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Yeah. Love it. All right. So, let's jump into observation. And I think one of the easiest things to do here is to remember some of those questions that we started with. When we're looking at the text, let's try to figure out who is speaking, who are they speaking to, what are they speaking about, what is the setting, what's going on here, why are they saying this, what what has happened, what is happening. This is all part of observation, and this was probably, I think our longest episode on the inductive method was going through observation. I want to say we cut that into like two episodes even. So, okay, as we're observing Jeremiah 29, 11, one of the first things we should notice is the word that it starts with is for. For 
I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Um, this tells me that what I'm reading is part of a bigger thought. This is part of a, this is part of a bigger, um, there's more context around this than just this one sentence. But before we move on from just our verse and kind of expand our view to, to a larger context, which I encourage, I think we've encouraged <laughs> two dozen times so far. Before we do that, we can look at some of the other ones. So four tells me that we're looking at a bigger thought here. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. So we know that God is the one who is saying something to someone. Uh, we know we don't know who this you is quite yet. It could be us. It could be Jeremiah. It could be the Israelites. It could be someone else. We got to do a little bit of work to figure that out. Um, plans for good and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. We know there's a there's a promise. There's a declaration being made. And so what we want to do, I think the right thing to do as we're in observing this text would be to zoom out a little bit to find where we can get a complete flow of thought to figure out what's going on in maybe this chapter or this segment of the book of Jeremiah um, and start piecing together what verse 11 means maybe in the context of the surrounding chapter. Mm. And then we can start digging into some interpretation. Does that sound like a good jumping off point? It does. I, I want to I mention something um, because, uh, Taylor, you've prepared a little bit to talk about this passage, but I'm, I'm coming into this fully cold. So I've I have never not, heard this one before. Huh? I've, <laughs> I've heard it before, certainly. Uh, but that's one of the things I wanted to just take note of uh, as an, my, like my initial point of observation as I was reading the ESV text is that this is not the version of this verse that I know best. Oh, yeah. Um, is it NIV? Yeah, I, and, and I, that's what I was doing here. I was looking up, like, what what is the one that sounds the most familiar to me? Uh-huh. And the one that sounds the most familiar to me is the NIV version, which is, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And just like an initial point of observation for me is those sound like very different verses in some ways. In, in the ESV, what God declares is, I have plans for your welfare versus plans to prosper you, mm-hmm. because like prosperity to me um, indicates like abundance and like I want to use the word luxury, like prosperity means sure. like wealth and abundance. Whereas just your welfare means to me, like just on the surface, welfare just means you're good. You know, it doesn't necessarily indicate abundance or luxury or wealth. It just means you're not, you're, you're, you're doing okay. You're not doing badly. Yeah. Um, Uh, Sustaining maybe. Yeah. 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 And, and so, again, and then the ESV says, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, or the ESV says, not for evil. Mm-hmm. So um, in the ESV, it sounds like God is saying, my plans towards you are not evil, whereas in the NIV, it sounds like God's saying, my plans towards you are not to hurt you in some way, which I can see how those things are related but they still seem, it seems like there's some nuance there. Mm-hmm. Um, the NIV says, plans to give you a hope and a future, and the ESV says simply to give you a hope and a future. 
Um, so that's that's one place where it is uh, almost exactly the same. So just you know, just coming in cold right off the top, um, I notice this sounds a little different than the version I I best know from growing up in the church, mm-hmm. and yet I notice immediately some differences. Yeah, between them, and that's an easy thing to do if you're if you're someone who's doing this at home and you find yourself with some time and you want to study scripture. Jumping back and forth between translations of, of the Bible has probably never been easier than it is now. Yeah, that's um, very true. You did that online in 30 seconds right. to go find yeah. that, and you probably could have found four or five more. Which, by the way, I mean, there are a ton of different um, things you can use online, but, the you know, honestly, just for quick type stuff like that, the thing that I do most often is biblegateway.com. Yeah. Biblegateway.com is a place where you can um, put in whatever passage of scripture you want and then they have probably I don't know I'm I'm just guessing here it looks something like 40 or 50 different English translations that yeah. you can then look at. And they'll so, show you pretty good comparisons too. Yeah, exactly. And there's probably a way to line them all up side by side mm. even that I'm not familiar with. Um so anyway, um, yeah, just right off the top, that's that's if I'm if I'm sitting and journaling and and just writing down my observations yeah. without any judgment, you know, just sort of here's what I see or I'm asking questions. That's what immediately comes up for me. Today. Yeah. So let's um, maybe let's jump out a little bit more in our view, right? Like let's jump back and look at more than just this one verse, which should maybe be the next step in, in anything that you're doing when you're observing text um, looking at a bigger chunk is gosh I can't recommend that enough uh, so let's look at maybe not the whole chapter but at least this this one thought uh, yeah. which I think might start from about verse 4 and I'm, I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's going to be a good chunk but verse 4 through maybe verse 14 uh, what we find here is that the Lord is talking to the Israelites that are now in captivity in Babylon. So we're talking to a specific group of people at a specific time. We find that this is during the exile to Babylon. So these are the Judean Israelites. They are in exile. They've been taken away from their land. And what God is telling them as we look at, at a bigger chunk of Scripture He's telling them to settle down and to build lives. He's telling them to build houses, to plant gardens and eat, to get married, to have kids, to, in fact, he's telling them to be fruitful and multiply. He's, he's giving them, coincidentally, uh, some of the same instructions that were given to Adam and Eve, given again to Noah and his family. So he's, he's giving them instructions to sustain themselves as a people group. Yeah, And that kind of caps off with, even though you're in exile, even though you're in this place that you don't want to be and you weren't supposed to be, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. This is plan, these are plans for welfare, right? For, for your sustenance, for sustaining you as a people, not plans for evil. And these, these are plans to give you a future and a hope. That's something that means a lot more to a people group in exile living now in captivity in the city of their greatest enemy than maybe it does if I didn't take that into account. Yeah, that's a very different situation than, say, the one I'm living in currently, mm-hmm. right? Where I'm a white, straight, upper-middle-class, middle-class 
male living in the wealthiest, most powerful country in the world where I am representative of the predominant people who are in power. Yeah, not to mention we're in the Bible Belt. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, just more cards stacked in your favor, really. Right, absolutely. Yeah, Uh, I mean, we could could continue zooming out here. I I don't know how long we want to look at context, but... Just again, in chapter 29 of Jeremiah, uh, what we learn is that this, this text is all part of a letter. Jeremiah is sending a letter to these exiles. He did this uh, at the instruction of God just to let them know kind of what we just talked about. So you guys are in exile. You weren't supposed to be here, but you're here because of your own actions. Now that you're here, God, I am going to sustain you is what he's saying through Jeremiah. Not only that, but don't listen to the folks who tell you otherwise, who say, hey, we're going to be going back home in a couple of years. We're, don't worry about the whole building houses thing, uh, getting married or multiplying here. We're not going to be in Babylon. God says, no, you're here now. Yeah. I'm the one who has plans for you. Listen to me and no one else. Yeah, and it's possible that you're you're hearing Taylor unpack all of that, and you're going, man, I, I, how, do, how in the world does he know all of that context about this situation? And... And yet, if you just read verse 1 of chapter 29, Mm -hmm. it establishes a lot of context for us. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. (laughs) That's Mm -hmm. verse 1. Like That gives a ton of context to everything that comes after that. And if you're sitting there going, well, I don't, I don't know what the exile is, or I don't know who Nebuchadnezzar is, or I don't know where Babylon was, or what any of those things mean, that's a place where, as we've said in previous episodes, a great study Bible or a commentary is going to help you dig deeper into the the context surrounding those things. What is the what is the larger context surrounding the exile? When mm-hmm. did that happen? Um, you know, how long did that last? Who was exiled? Who are these people? Um, and and even just here, um, I'm looking at the ESV study Bible online. And my gosh, there is there is just so much in that uh, Bible's introduction to the book of Jeremiah that will help you even further deepen the context of Jeremiah 29. But yeah. even without that stuff, we get a lot in just the first verse of this chapter. Mm-hmm. So that's that's um, that's where a lot of this is coming from. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think if you were just to read chapter 29, it, and this is all for the purpose of understanding verse 11, right? We're doing this specifically centered around Jeremiah 29, 11, but even, even just expanding our view to chapter 29, so outside of the rest of the book of Jeremiah, which is large, and, and what can be difficult to read at times, the, the prophets in the Bible are not always the easiest reads, but Leaving all that out, if we're even just expanding our view to chapter 29, we get more of the context. We see that it's a letter that we're reading. We mm-hmm. see who it's from. We see we see who it's to. And then in the context of that letter that talks a lot about the exile uh, and why they're in exile, our verse that we're looking at here, verse 11, kind of stands as a beacon of hope. It mm-hmm. is this this kind of message of comfort in the midst of the exile and the turmoil that these people are in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So we want to read around the verse that is our primary verse, verse 11. And when you just kind of pull out a little bit, what you see is verse 11 is a part of a paragraph. Mm -hmm. And that paragraph is a part of a larger chapter. Um, And so I would recommend um, either starting by just reading the entire chapter or at the very least start by reading the whole paragraph and then zoom out from there. Um, But, you know, this being a letter... One of the things that we've said in previous episodes is that's something we actually don't get a lot of in the Old Testament. Yeah, it's something right. we get a ton of in the New Testament, primarily from Paul. But in the Old Testament, we don't see uh, correspondence a whole lot. And so this is something that's a little bit unique. Um, it's couched within this book of prophecy, right, from the, the prophet Jeremiah. But within this book of prophecy, you get this letter which also contains prophecy. Um, Mm -hmm. Let me just read that whole paragraph, though, that surrounds verse 11. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Um, If you remember this place, um, Jeremiah, in verse 1, it said, Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, um, this letter, and um, he sent it to them in Babylon from Jerusalem. And so right. it, when he says this place, uh, my assumption, having not studied this deeply, is he's talking about Jerusalem. Um, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me, seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So, again, yeah. Jerusalem. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's the paragraph that surrounds all of that. So there are a ton of promises that God makes in there, um, but yet notice also um, it all began in verse 10 with that refrain that we find throughout the Old Testament, for thus says the Lord, or in some translations it'll say, thus saith the Lord, um, which is sort of the prophet's calling card, isn't it? It's, it's the prophet yeah. saying, I'm not speaking my words to you, I'm speaking God's words to you, and here they are, boom. Yeah, um, yeah that's right. So having looked at this paragraph, having looked a little bit at chapter 29, I think, and, you know, we could do this all day, but goodness, we could go back and look at the entirety of the book of Jeremiah, which we certainly don't have time to do right now. But as you as you ask these questions to yourself, um, you know, who's writing, who are they writing to, what's going on? That, that lens that you're using to look at the text will naturally get a little bit larger. Right. Because the more you go, okay, well, what's going on? Well, what did that mean? Well, what prompted this? Well, what, you're going to continue yeah, you zooming can, out. you can observe endlessly. Right. Um, I think part of what uh, experience will teach you, the more you do this, you will get to the place where you um, are able to sort of dovetail observation and interpretation together. Um, where you, you're able to kind of get this kind of zoomed out 30,000 foot view of everything and go, okay, do I have enough observational data 
to now make some kind of an interpretive call, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And and the question of interpretation is, what does this mean, right? Mm -hmm. Not uh, the question of observation is is, is what is here, right? Or, or what does it say? Interpretation is what does it mean? And so I think what you will find is that over time, the more you do this, you will find some fluidity or a, maybe a more seamless transition between observation and interpretation. Yeah. Because it seems to me, and we've only been looking at this for you know maybe 10 minutes, it seems to me that we already have enough observational data to make some interpretive calls on what verse 11 means. Yeah. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Would you yeah. agree with that? I think so. Does that mean you want to cut off any more, any more of my rambling? <laughs> no, no, no. Because we can do it. Otherwise, I'll add one more layer. Okay, do and it. And I'll pile it on. We'll make this a big a bean dip. <laughs> seven layer, a seven layer delicious guacamole. Observational dip. Yes. So I think there's one more that I want to go to, and that is the covenantal context. Yeah. It's, it's one in a number of things that we mentioned, but maybe when you're... When you're reading the Old Testament, this might be one that people take for granted mm -hmm. the most, depending on where we are in the right. scope of the Old Testament. Yeah. Uh, the covenantal context makes a ton of difference. And so as Jeremiah is writing to these exiles, what we want to know is what covenant is Israel under? What's going on here and, and why does this matter? Yeah. Um, and the, the biggest, while there are two covenants kind of in play right now, the covenant with Moses and the covenant with David. Mm -hmm. The big one that Jeremiah is referencing here throughout chapter 29 is going to be the Mosaic covenant. Yeah. The reason the Israelites, the Judeans, are in Babylon, in exile, is because they did not uphold their end of the Mosaic covenant. So this was an agreement made between God and Israel at Mount Sinai, this came with blessings and curses, and that depended on Israel's behavior. And so there were, there were two sides to uphold here. Um, Israel was not holy. They were not set apart. They were not a kingdom of priests. They weren't loving God. They weren't loving others. And so with a knowledge of this covenant and all of its terms, it makes sense that we now see Israel being in Babylon. This is, this is no surprise with, with greater context. This is actually the promised outcome of this covenant. Um, and some of the places that we see that is specifically Deuteronomy chapter 28. And then you find some hints even in this text uh, of Deuteronomy chapter 30, uh, when he says a little bit further down, you'll call on me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. These are things that we see really echoes way back in Deuteronomy. So when the when the Mosaic Covenant is kind of being wrapped up, we're putting a bow on it at the end of Deuteronomy, which as we remember is part of the Torah. When we're putting a bow on that, there are these prophecies being made, and one of them basically says, look, when you guys mess this up and find yourselves in exile, this is what's going to happen. And that ends with, then you're going to seek me with your whole heart. Mm -hmm. You'll pray to me. I will return to you. I'll come and find you. And so we see some of that going on. It is important to note that the exile that Israel is in right now is not 
just some random thing. It's not some just action that was allowed to occur for seemingly no reason. This was pretty much the promised terms of the covenant entered into and agreed upon by Israel. That's correct. And it's something that for hundreds of years, God warned the people and warned the people and warned the people and sent prophet after prophet after prophet to to call the people to repentance so that this wouldn't have to happen. Right. Right. So, so even when the people repeatedly broke the terms of the covenant, God, in his love and forbearance and patience, bore with them and sought to call them back to him. Yeah. Um, so you're talking about what was one of our five C's, which was um, sort of our interpretive lens for uh, the Old Testament. Um, and if you remember, context, covenant, canon character of God and Christ. Those were the five things that we said you could be looking for when you're working to interpret the Old Testament. So you're talking about the covenantal age in which this text falls Mm -hmm. and the covenantal connections that this text has. And so I think that's, that's huge. Let me ask you this. Do we see Jesus in this passage? Because one of those one of those lenses for us is Christ, and yeah. what what we said or what we asked whenever we were going through that was, do we see Jesus in every single text? Like, is is he there? Um, does this text in some way point ahead to Christ? Um, man, can I give like the most ambiguous yes and no <laughs> answer? Because some of this gets into uh, if we if we look forward, if we jump. Four chapters forward in Jeremiah, we get what we call hints of the new covenant. We get this new covenant language that's mentioned by a few of the prophets, but very specifically in Jeremiah. Uh, And it's Jeremiah, what, 33, right? Jeremiah 30, no, Jeremiah 31, 31, Mm. yeah, where he talks about a new covenant that God is preparing for his people. Uh, He's going to give them hearts of flesh. He's going to make them new again. This, as we know, looking backward, is absolutely predicting Mm. Jesus. Mm -hmm. But the coming Messiah wasn't necessarily a novel idea, especially Mm. for the prophets or especially for Israel. That was was something they knew of for sure. So I'm going to say while we're looking at verse 11 specifically, and there are probably some people that would be mad at me for this, the future and a hope does extend beyond Israel returning to their land. Yeah. Um, and so I think we see some of Jesus in that because in the Old Testament, we see Judah return to Jerusalem, mm-hmm. and we don't see the consummation and the fulfillment of all these promises like we thought we would. The Old Testament kind of ends on a cliffhanger in that way. So this future and a hope has to speak to more than just land. Well, yeah, because even in just a very physical way, this is the people group that Jesus comes from. That's right. Right? So even though they have been carried into exile, the Lord has preserved them throughout this exile, and the thing that he says that kind of gives me goosebumps is, for I know the plans I have for you, right? Like, I, I have plans to sustain you and to bring you back to the place you came from, and that, that there are larger ramifications than you just being returned to your place and being happy yeah, um, or being restored in some way. Um, there, there is this 
future and hope, right, that is bigger than you just getting to go home. Mm-hmm. Um, and that future and hope is the coming Messiah. It is Christ. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. I, I think we definitely see him here, even in just this short text. And if you read Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, you will see that in even greater ways. Yeah. All right. I love it. So I, I think, man... All right, I'm going to stop myself. Let's be, <laughs> let's be done right there with the observation. I think we've covered some pretty good ground and hopefully have shown some of the ways that we can do this, um, certainly not all of them, but maybe continue asking these questions and just having that, having that lens grow as you ask them. And another thing is the more you read these stories, the more you read Scripture— these small passages like this will make more sense each time, mm-hmm. and it'll help your understanding of the whole. Um, so, so you said that completes the observation. Did you mean interpretation, or do you feel like I because I kind of feel like we've done both of these things together? Y- yeah, we really have to some extent. So, if I were to ask you, Taylor, what is what does Jeremiah twenty nine eleven mean? What would you say? Everything I just said. Okay, no, you're you're right. We did. Give we me did your elevator pitch, man. My el- oh gosh, I'm so terrible at being put on the spot with these things. Well, um, yeah, I, I mean, for me, this is one of those places where it is. This is not super ambiguous. Yeah. Like, so metaphor is not being employed here. This is, you know, one of the questions we can ask in interpretation is what genre are we reading? And we said we're reading a letter which is not a place where you would find heavy metaphor or symbolism or allegory or, narr- or like, like fictional narrative or anything like that. Um, what we do find here is prophecy, we said, um, and that, that's clear in verse 10 when it says, for thus says the Lord, the prophet Jeremiah is declaring God's word to the people. And sometimes in prophecy, we can find symbol and metaphor. Um, but here, by all accounts, when he says, I know the plans I have for you, God literally has plans for these people. Mm-hmm. Um, and the big, the big caveat that I would throw out there is that first and foremost, when Jeremiah says, the Lord says, I know the plans I have for you, he's not talking about me. That's right. And he's not talking about you, Taylor, and he's not talking about anybody else that's listening to this right now. He's talking specifically to the people of Judah who were the recipients of this letter. Mm -hmm. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, and those are plans for welfare and not for evil. They're plans to give you a future and a hope. This text kind of means what it says, but the larger interpretation here that we were just hitting on was that God also knows the plans he has for us mm-hmm. in his omniscience. And through Christ, he also has plans to uh, plans for our welfare and not for our evil, right? And plans that ultimately result in us having a hope in the future. Mm-hmm. So that would be my 45-second interpretation of this passage. Yeah, I I think that's spot on, and I think that naturally leads us to, so what do you do with the verse? Mm-hmm. Because that that speaks to the con- the original context, the original audience. Mm-hmm. It speaks into what it means and how it would mean something across all time. 
Uh, and so it begs the question, then what do I do with God has good plans for me for mm-hmm. a future and a hope? And so yeah. I guess, yeah, we have just come straight to the application. Yeah. So again, what does this say? What does it mean? And then what does it mean for me? Mm-hmm. And, you know, in in terms of the interpretation, it, as you might have noticed, leads us directly into that application by going, oh, well, this doesn't this doesn't mean the Lord has sort of like general plans for my life to bless me in all ways, right? So if we pull this verse out by itself and remove it from its context, then we could use it as people have to say that God has plans for your life and those are plans that are going to to use the NIV right. plans to prosper you. Um, not to harm you, and not to harm you, and and so what our tendency is is to take that and go, well, how do I want the Lord to prosper me? And it's quite possible that you primarily would answer that question in materialistic terms. Sure, I want the Lord to pay off my house, or I want the Lord to give me this, or I want the Lord to do this in my life. And that's not at all what this verse is saying, yeah. as we've as we've already pointed out. It is first and foremost um, something that's being said t- to the exiles who are in Babylon, but then the ramifications for us surround the person and work of Christ. Mm-hmm. And so, this is not something for us that it has future implications, but it also has past tense implications in that Jesus has already died and risen. And so the Lord's plans for us to prosper us and not to harm us are are seen in retrospect in and through the death and resurrection of Christ. And the future implications of that involve that already but not yet thing where one day... I will I will I'll experience that fully down yeah. the road. Does that yeah. seem Oh, I love it. I, <laughs> I think the the biggest thing that I'm hearing, well there's there's two sides of this application. And one is to maybe not do what we want to do with this verse. Yeah. Right? Yeah. The the biggest thing is to not use this verse as almost like a religious crutch to say, God is not gonna let me be uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. God is not mm-hmm. gonna let me suffer. He's not going to, that's, that's not what we're saying that this is about that. We're, we're not saying, cause that's, we've looped right around the prosperity gospel there. Absolutely. And I mean, I've been in people's homes before where this is on the wall, yeah. you know, in like a frilly script, you know, print. Right. And right over the sink. Yeah. yeah. And so if you're, if if what you do with this is is use it as some sort of warm fuzzy to go man god's going to give me whatever i want whenever i want it then you haven't done you haven't followed the steps that we've laid out for you and you are doing eisegesis mm-hmm. you know or you are coming to this text um with a preconceived notion of what you want it to mean or what you want it to say rather than working through it and letting it, letting it speak for itself. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you, Taylor. I think one of the big application points for us here is to 
um, lean on Jesus, to like lean on Christ as our ultimate uh, prosperity, mm-hmm. as our ultimate welfare, as our ultimate hope and future, and to not um, kind of follow our flesh and um, interpret prosperity or welfare or hope or future in terms of earthly materialistic things. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the biggest hang up here is we want to use, we want to use God's sovereignty. I I think both of these viewpoints want to lean on the sovereignty of God, but one of them says, I want to lean on God's sovereignty that he's going to provide for me, you know, whatever, fill in the blank financially and health and all this. One has nothing to do with Jesus. That's right. Yeah. I'm going to lean on God's sovereignty in the minutia of my life that just purely benefits me this side of the grave. Right. The other is going to lean on God's sovereignty in the fact that this has been taken care of, yeah, meaning yeah. my eternity. Mm-hmm. And I have yet a, a, a hope that I can look to, the evidence of that hope, and the future hope that awaits me. That's right. Yeah, it's almost like in, in one of those applications, the emphasis is on prosperity, and in the other application, the emphasis is on hope and future. Yeah. Um, and, and yet, if Christ is the subject there, then our prosperity, our welfare, our lack of harm, our hope and future, they're all found in and through him. Okay, so our second text we're going to look at is Ephesians 5, 22 through 24. And uh, when I told Taylor this is what I wanted to do, um, what did you say? You were like, oh, sure, the, the, the verse that, or the passage that entire books have been written about. Yeah, yeah, certainly nothing uh, to argue over. Like we said earlier, though, um, even in just recognizing this as a so-called controversial text, we're, we're coming to it with presupposition. In That's a way. right. And so let's try to set that aside, and um, let me read this to us. Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 24, and I'm reading from the ESV translation. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. All right. So let me start by just making some observations, just some things I noticed as I was working through this earlier. Um, First of all, in verse 22, I noticed that wives should submit to their own husbands. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that's never stuck out to me before, but this is not some kind of uh, word from Paul that wives should submit to any male or all males, um, but instead the emphasis here is on husband and one's own husband. Um, secondly, he relates that to submission to the Lord, um, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord um, is something else I noticed there at the end of verse 22. Um, reading on, 
uh, he says, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Um, so just a question that comes up for me immediately is, what does that mean? What does it mean that the husband is the head of the wife? And there are a couple of words in here that I immediately flag as words that I want to explore more deeply. Um, and head is one of those. Um, what does Paul mean when he says that something is the head of something? Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I notice here is that, um, at least in these verses, he never, like the, like the, he always like equates what he's asking to something that, um, is uh, let me let me try to figure out how best to say this. Whatever he's asking, he relates it in some way to our relationship to the Lord. Yeah. So, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, which I immediately take to mean in the same way that you submit to the Lord. Um, so, a question there might be: Are only wives supposed to submit to the Lord? Um, Verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, but here's, again, this thing, even as Christ is the head of the church. So it is equated to um, Christ being the head of the church, and then then he says the church is Christ's body and is himself its Savior. So there Paul's saying Christ is the head of the church, whatever that means, and he's also the Savior of the church which is his body. And then verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, so who is the church? And, and the, the church, is this body is supposed to be in submission to Christ as its head. Again, the equa- the equa- it's equated to wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Um, anything jump out at you as you read this? Um, no, I mean, I think you covered all of it. I, I do like the fact that you brought up the own, because I think mm-hmm. this may be, again, we're already jumping into the, the preconceived notions here, the historical misguidings of a passage like this. But I think this has been used in a negative light to say, you know, women submit to every man. Mm. So that, that one, that one I think is important. The other one is, um, like you mentioned, the the equation being do this as it is spiritually represented between Christ and the church do this do this action as it is represented by the church's or by by Christ's authority over the church or by the church's mm-hmm. submission to Christ um so i guess the the thing that was kind of firing off in my head was the the factor of love being just the most the most ultimate, I don't know, I guess the biggest factor in all of this, none of this submission happens within the church to Christ without love. Mm. And so that is something that I think I'm already jumping ahead, but something that I would, I would just kind of plug back into the other half of that equation. Yeah. So here's what I like to do, because I mentioned um, that there are a couple of words here that jump out at me. Mm. One is the word submit. 
Um, and the other one is the word head. Right. And so let's start with the word submit because, again, preconceived notions. Um, we come to this text, I think, with uh, from from a culture and from a period in time where the concept of subjection is predominantly or primarily viewed in a negative light. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, you might want to say, well, has that always been the case? Has subjection or being a subject of another always or being submitted to another, um, has that always been viewed in this negative way? Or has that always been a negative thing? Are there any positive Im- implications there whatsoever? Um, so what I normally do when I encounter words like that, again, the New Testament written in Greek, the Old Testament primarily written in Hebrew, one of the easiest things to do is to just go to Google and to type the verse that you're in and then type the word interlinear and hit enter. And what that's going to do is it's going to take you to an interlinear Bible, um, and the one I'm on here is um, on, I think, BibleHub.com. BibleHub.com. And what it's going to do is it's going to give you the English text of the verse along with the Greek text of the verse. And it's going to show you the most literal rendering in English of the text. And all of the Greek words are then hyperlinked so that you can follow that link and see how that word is used, other places in the New Testament where that word is used, and other possible definitions as well that the word could have. Because one thing that is true with the Greek especially is that um, the, um, the context of the word in the sentence has bearing on how it is defined. Mm-hmm. Um, in the sentence. So the Greek word here that gets translated as submit is the word hupotasso, hupotasso. And the basic definition that it gives me here is that hupotasso means to place or rank under, to subject, um, or to obey. And um, then it shows us uh, a number of places in the scripture where it's used. This word is used in Luke two fifty one. Um, this work is this word is used in Luke ten seventeen, where the demons are subject to us in your name. Um, it says. Um, so what you find is a variety of places where this word is used, and in each of those usages. It is something that is coming underneath something else, something that is obeying something else or submitting or subjecting to something else. So, okay, that gives us a little bit more understanding, possibly, of, of what that's about. Um, let's try the other one, which is the word head. Mm-hmm. Um, head, um, let's see, we find this in... Verse 23, Um, so I'm doing the same thing, typing in Ephesians 5, 23, interlinear, and 
what pulls up for us here is the Greek word kephale, kephale. And the definition is just the head. <laughs> so uh, what's interesting is in the usage, it says it could be the head or um, it could be a cornerstone uniting two walls, a head, a ruler, a lord. Okay, well, so that gives us a little bit more um, context here. When you look, though, at some of the other verses that this word is used in, what you see is sometimes it is referring to a person's literal head. Mm-hmm. Um, Matthew six seventeen is a place where it says, anoint your head. And so, um, or Matthew 4, 14, 8, where the head of John the Baptist was brought in on a platter. Mm-hmm. So in all of those instances, it is referring to a literal head. Yet, um, in the verse we're reading, uh, I can see it being both literal and sort of metaphorical or literal and spiritual in nature. Christ is the head of the church in sort of this metaphorical way, or maybe that's not the best word, in sort of the symbolic way. Yeah. Christ is the head of the church, and yet the language that the New Testament uses is this language of body, the church being the body of Christ, and Jesus being the head of the body. And so I think that is, um, there is, there is like a literal reality that that is symbolically describing for us. Is mm-hmm. that fair? Mm-hmm. So um, just by doing a little bit of digging there, we maybe come away with some deeper understanding. One of the things that seems significant to me is with submission, um, there are two contexts for submission. One is when a person is coerced or forced into submission, and then there's another situation where a person submits his or herself to something. Mm-hmm. I think in example A, that's always viewed by people as a negative thing. If you're being forced or coerced into submission, um, but but if I submit myself to something willingly or gladly, if if I willingly put myself under the authority of something else or somebody else, um, as we've all done in our lives. Yeah. I mean, anytime you've uh, accepted a job somewhere, you have submitted yourself to the leadership of that organization on some level, right? Like, not not necessarily in all things, but in certain things, you've you have intentionally submitted yourself to this business or this corporation and its leadership. It's not something that's been forced on you. It's not something you've been coerced to do. And in most cases, more than likely, you've been happy to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, So it seems to me that even in just understanding submission, that there are different contexts for submission and some where submission is negative and some possibly where it is positive as well. Um, So wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Um, So that's that's just a bit of observation about what what we see there in the passage. Those are things that just pop up for me. Um, 
the next step from there is let's just try to establish some larger context here. Oh, I'm right? looking forward to this. <laughs> because these are only three verses That's right. in the middle of the book of Ephesians. And so um, what chapter is this in? It's in chapter 5. What is that chapter all about? Heck, what what's the book of Ephesians That's right. all about? Um, so uh, chapter 5 of Ephesians um, begins with the word, therefore. Um, so much like what we saw in Jeremiah, that immediately tells us that this is a thought that is not standing alone by itself, that there are things that have come before this that we need to go back and look at. Um, but this whole chapter begins with this statement, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's interesting to me because, um, you know, in my mind, what's coming after this is coming in light of that statement that we are to be imitators of God. And so on some level, I think what Paul is doing in a lot of this chapter is he's giving us examples of what it looks like to be imitators of God as beloved children. And it says we are to walk in love, and again, this is equated to Christ, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Mm -hmm. Um, So Paul goes from there in verse 3, and he gives us an example of what it looks like to be an imitator of God. Verse 3, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. So if we are imitating God, God is not um, sexually immoral, God is not impure, God is not covetous, and so we should be aspiring to be God-like in that way, or godly in that way. Um, And Paul says that's what's proper among saints, among followers of Jesus. He goes from there, he goes into more things, let there be no filthiness or foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place, um, and on and on and on, down to verse 8 and 9, walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So um, Paul's saying to the people that he's writing to here that they need to spend their time considering what does it look like for me to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord? What does God desire of me? Um, He hits this again, verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Um, And then more of these uh, ideas about what it looks like to be godly. Um, Do not get drunk with wine, verse 18, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Mm -hmm. That's what immediately then takes us into the text that we looked at. The the transition verse there is verse 21, like everything began here at the beginning of the chapter with be imitators of God. He gives us examples of that, and one of those examples, verse 21, is that we, out of reverence for Christ, that we all would be, we being the, the people he's writing to here, not necessarily me and you yet, 
that we would be people who are submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he takes that into the marriage relationship and speaks directly to wives first, but then also speaks to husbands as well. Um, and we'll talk about that husband piece in just a moment. But let me stop. And Taylor, let me just get your um, get your take on this as, as you're sitting there listening and reading through this yourself. Yeah, well, you know, I always love expanding our view and looking at it a little bit more. Um, I like moving backwards first before moving forwards. Yeah. And so going from the passage that we looked at all the way back up to the beginning of chapter 5 is great because we see in chapter 5... Paul starting to break down what it means to be this imitator of God, what it means to walk in love like this, and what it means to be submissive is is what's going to follow all of this, right? So what we read, wives submitting to husbands, is the first example that Paul's going to make of what it means to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. But he started all that by kind of building up to it, and then I think the other thing that's important here is our, like you mentioned, chapter five starts with therefore, yeah. which means even this large component that Paul's building out in this chapter is built on the foundation of something else. Mm-hmm. And so the the bigger, the bigger message of Ephesians starts to come into view the more we we scroll out. But chapter five specifically sets us up well because it talks a lot about submission and a lot about submission to Christ, then leading into, hey, because of this, because of our love, because of the fact that we're imitating God, because of the fact that Christ has done this work for us, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ Mm -hmm. and do that in love. Yeah. So now what does that look like, right? What does that look like in the household? What does that look like in life? Yeah, it seems to me that Paul is speaking in idealistic terms here. Oh, yeah. Right? If, If all of this is about being imitators of God. Well, God is perfect in all ways. And so we also are, Paul says, should be seeking to be perfect in all ways because we're seeking to be an imitator of God and to be an imitator of Christ who loved us and submitted himself for us. Verse 2, like he gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Um, so when we get to verses 22 through 24, when you read that, um, this is one of those places where people immediately want to jump to application, and we immediately want to start going, well, what about if this is the situation, or what about if this is, has happened, or what if, what if the husband is like this, or what if he's like that, or whatever? And, and don't miss that verse 21 has already said that there should be this mutual submission thing going on, um, that we should be submitted to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then taking that into the microcosm of the marriage, he hasn't changed his course here. He hasn't changed to some other topic or subject I think he's still describing for us what it looks like to be imitators of God, yeah. and this is in now in the context of the marriage. So he's just giving practical examples after setting up the overarching theme. And that's why all of these things are equated to God in some way, Yeah. right? Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. 
the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit and everything to their husbands. But then um, you have not read all of this if you don't continue on. Verse 25, here is the ideal for husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So husbands are called to love their wives with this boundless sacrificial love that is only displayed fully in the person and work of Christ. So again, this is all about looking to him and seeking to emulate him. So Paul's not describing a relationship here where the husband is evil or abusive or a drunk or um, coercive or manipulative or codependent or any of those kinds of things. He's describing an ideal where the husband is living this sacrificial existence that is uh, the pursuit of Christ-likeness mm -hmm. in his marriage. Um, and verse 28, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Uh, Paul talks about this one flesh notion. Verse 31, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so what he's saying is, your wife is not separate from you. Your, your wife is not somebody to be subjected in a negative sense. Um, your wife is a part of you in this union of flesh that Scripture describes. And, and he, he's clear here, verse 32, this mystery is profound, because physically you are two, you're still separate persons, right? Mm -hmm. But yet Scripture is clear that in a biblical marriage, the husband and wife become one. And I think the corollary here is that in the church, we become one with Christ. We are, we are not separate from him. We are his body. He is our head. Um, and he goes on, and he says, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Um, However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Um, so... Um, Obviously, because we live in a world of sin and a world of brokenness, um, what Paul has just described is certainly not the experience of marriage that a lot of people have, right. or the experience of relationships that a lot of people have. Um, and the challenge here, I think, is um, in situations where these verses are used coercively toward women to, um, for example, to encourage them to stay in an abusive relationship or in a relationship where the husband doesn't love the Lord or even acknowledge the Lord in any way, and so the relationship is unhealthy um, and that the wife, you know, should just submit without question to whatever the husband would ask her to do or demand of her or, um, I mean, I've heard ridiculous ways that this has been used. Yeah. Um, but recognize the context here, as we've just laid out, is Paul describing an ideal where everybody involved is striving for godliness um, and, and is striving to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. Hmm. Um, any thoughts on that, Taylor? 
Uh, no, I don't think anything more than what you've said. I, I like highlighting that this is, I like highlighting the fact that this is the ideal. Mm -hmm. um, there is not a husband that a wife would want to be in submission to other than a husband who is acting as Christ acts for the church. Yeah, yeah. Sacrificially like that. And notice here, he's not, um, he's, he's laying out sort of this um, model, I guess you could say, for, for what this looks like, but he's not, he's not claiming that the husband is superior to the wife um, or that the husband is uh, something like more made in the image of God than the wife is. Nothing like that's going on here. Um, any anything like that that you would take away is something I think that you've read into this that's not actually there. Um, again, pulling out even farther the larger um, implications here of Ephesians. If you remember, one of our New Testament interpretive lenses was to consider um, the indicatives, mm -hmm. right, and um, the imperatives. And so the indicatives are things like what does, what does the text tell us about God? And the imperatives are what we do as a result of what the text has told us about God. Um, and so if you go back to something like chapter 2, mm -hmm. um, really the first few chapters of Ephesians are indicatives, and then the last few chapters of Ephesians are imperatives. Right, So Paul begins by building this foundation of here is what God has done for us through Christ, and now here is what you should do as a result. Um, and what he says in verse 2 is, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So incredible, like incredible yeah. news, incredible stuff there that he's talking about. And that last piece is key. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And he continues unpacking that. And then when we get to chapter five, therefore, based on everything that God has done, therefore, since you're created for good work, be imitators of God. There's no better work, um, even though I think that has some maybe specific ramifications in your life, what that work looks like. That work is uh, carried out in the light of being an imitator of God, yeah. looking to him and saying, who is he? How do I live as a result? Um, yeah, so by expanding to the larger context of Ephesians as a whole, we're able to see this unity that Paul is pushing, which is which we see examples of in chapter 5 and in chapter 6, 
But that uni- that unity comes on the foundation of the importance of Christ and his work and the creation of the church, which was his doing, yeah. not ours. And because now we are part of this church and have been adopted as sons and daughters with Jesus, this is how we're expected to live in this new family. So yeah. everything that we're seeing in chapters 5 and 6 that might seem weird when they're taken just by themselves, well, that, that is strange because we're part of a new family now, and there are ways that this new family is expected to act. Just read Ephesians 1 through 3. Yeah, yeah. Now, we have not done a lot of contextual analysis of where was Ephesus and right. what was the cultural context in Ephesus. Certainly, again, a good study Bible or commentary is going to give you some of that. But there hasn't been anything here that we've read thus far that really would point us in that direction of feeling like, hey, I've got to figure out Ephesus first before I can come to an understanding of what Paul's trying to say. Yeah, Paul. Sometimes Paul is a bit obtuse, but at least for me, this is one of the easier letters of his to understand. Um, And I feel like to some extent he doesn't really beat around the bush. Um, so, so that would be, um, that would be our basic interpretation here of, of what's going on. Um, now notice we haven't made any application to you or your life or anything else. We're just saying, Hey, here, here's what Paul is saying in this letter to the church in Ephesus. It, he's saying, God has done all of these incredible things for us through Christ, and he has purposes and plans and intentions for us in and through those things. And... As a result of all of that, we all, not not just wives, right, everybody, we should all be imitators of God. We should all be imitators of Jesus. And, and then let me just tease out for you what it looks like for us all to be submitted to Christ and to be seeking to please Him and seeking to be imitators of Him. Mm-hmm. So Paul is not idealizing for us uh, a marriage situation well, first of all, even before that, he's not idealizing for us a church situation where everybody isn't submitted to Christ, right? We live in a world today where you have churches of people where maybe some people are submitted to Christ and other people are not submitted to Christ. Yeah. And certainly that would have been the case in Ephesus as well. Paul is calling everybody to a higher bar. He mm-hmm. is calling everybody to submit themselves to Christ and to submit themselves to each other. Like there is upward submission and mutual submission at the same time. And he then gives us the marriage as a microcosm of that, as like a mini version of that same thing. And almost like a living example of what it looks like for the church to be submitted to Christ. So also in the marriage, the ideal if we're seeking to please God, is that the husband is somebody who is fully submitting himself to the Lord, seeking to love his wife as much as he loves himself, because his wife is not separate from him. She is a part of his flesh. She is like, because of what marriage is biblically. And then as a result, the wife also does not love herself more than um, anybody else. She also, I mean, like the husband is submitting himself to the wife in that scenario, right? He's not, there's nothing here about holding authority or lording something over her. It's about sacrificing for her, right? Right. So I'm, I am not loving myself more than I love her. And then the wife also 
you are also not to love yourself more than your husband, right? So we are both here, even in this scenario, submitting ourselves mm -hmm. to each other. So that's that's my interpretation of this. Um, and so, Taylor, what's the application here? Oh, man. <laughs> so again, the easy question. interpretation, this means one thing. It doesn't mean multiple things. Application um, has the potential uh, to play out in different ways in different situations. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think for me personally, like, because I, I think that's probably the easiest thing for me to do here. For me personally, when when I read this section on on wives, I'm I'm not a wife, right? <laughs> so it's it, he's not talking to me there. That's right, right? Um, so I um, I want to understand what he's trying to say and what it means. But when I get to that section where it says husbands. Well, I am one of those, right? So before I impose anything on wives at large, or certainly on my own wife, I want to first consider what this is saying to me personally as a husband, and I want to seek to try to put that to practice in my, in my life first, mm -hmm. right? Um, so I, I want to... Um, if I'm following this, I want to seek to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord. He's given me a variety of ways to do that. But then in the context of my marriage, I'm supposed to not be Jesus in my marriage, but I'm supposed to look to Christ and seek to emulate him in the way that I operate as a husband and in my love for my wife, that my love should be sacrificial towards her and that I should be um, not looking at her as separate from me in some way, where I can be selfish about some things as if they don't affect her, but instead that we are one flesh together. Yeah. Um, and so immediately I look in my own heart and go, oh man, I've got a lot of work to do here on this front. Like I've got a lot of work because I, like anybody else, can certainly be selfish, can certainly love myself more, can think of myself more highly than her. And so in, in, in asking the question, how do I personally live in a way that's pleasing to the Lord? Well, man, just right there, I've got a lot of work to do. Um, and it'd be easier for me to focus in maybe on the ways that she doesn't fulfill mm -hmm. what Paul's talking about here, but that would be me deflecting the spotlight from myself onto her when yeah. when I've got my own sin. And to consequently, deal with it would be you missing the point of something like verse 25, yeah. which is the sacrificial part of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, sure. I agree that that's, that's always going to be the most difficult, but that's certainly an area that I can look at and think, okay, it, when I'm truly loving sacrificially, that means there there's no limit. Like there's no cap on what it means to sacrifice something. When we're talking about the, uh, um, the example being Christ's love for the church in that he died for the church, then there is no limit to what I'm asked to sacrifice for my wife, who is a part of me. Mm -hmm. Meaning when I can kind of audit my own life and get to the point where I go, well, gosh, you know, I've done this and I did this and I did this the other day and I sacrificed in these ways and can have that lingering, almost subconscious thought of like, well, isn't that enough? Mm -hmm. right, at least for this week, then you're not there. Yeah. <laughs> and then, then there's clearly some work to do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, we said earlier that this, this text is controversial just because the idea of submission 
is controversial in our world today. And um, one of the things I take away from this is the fact that when we're all living in submission to Christ, um, when we're all seeking to be godly um, and seeking to live in a way that's pleasing to Him, then the ways that this could go south are non-issues, mm-hmm. right? Because in, in those situations, there isn't physical, emotional, spiritual abuse, sexual abuse, none of those things. Like, there's no, there's no place for abuse in a life of submission to Christ, right? Um, because abuse would mean that you are not sacrificing for this other person. It means you are oppressing or repressing this other person. Mm-hmm. So Paul is in no way talking about that. He's certainly not uh, supportive of that kind of re- relationship, and um, it's it's not even a part of the text here. Yeah, not least of all the fact that chapter 5 starts with, this is not going to be something that you do, and yes. then lists all of those things. Yes. Um, and and oftentimes, what I, you know, there there and this is not true across the board, but sometimes whenever I encounter a text like this that makes me go, ooh, you know, like, what does that mean? Or is that really true? Um, I have to... I have to do the hard kind of introspective work of going um, after after interpreting and stuff. Just going, um, is this just a hard thing that I need to come to terms with? Right? Is this just a hard thing in Scripture that I I need to um, I need to see my own unwillingness to want to believe it? Um, because and and in this case, in the context of submission. Whether, whether you're talking about a wife or a husband, what Paul is really getting at here to me is the fact that we, because of what Christ has done, and certainly in the context of marriage, but also in the context of the church, um, we are not autonomous anymore. Yeah, we're not our own. Exactly, which is what he says um, elsewhere. You are not your own. You have been bought at a price, yeah. um, which means... If you are in Christ, you are now subjected to Christ. Um, The New Testament uses the language of slavery there, too. Slaves to righteousness, slaves to Christ. Um, All all, like words that to us are nothing but negative. And yet in the context of the New Testament, they are positive words. Um, Because Jesus is not another person, Mm -hmm. right? Because Jesus is perfect and good and loving in all ways, and again, indicatives and imperatives, this all began with Paul setting that up. Let me, let me extol for you the goodness of God and, and just how incredible what he has done for us in Christ is. And so as a result, we should be glad and excited to be subjected to him, to be mm-hmm. submitted to him because he is not another sinful human being. He is a good and perfect and all-loving God. Um, And so if I come away and go, yeah, but I just want to do what I want to do, whether I'm a husband or a wife, and I want to do what I want to do, no matter what my spouse says or wants or feels, then I am not living in any kind of submission to that other person. And I am not living... Um, as if I am in a one flesh union 
with this other person. Um, and that's one of the hardest parts of marriage, yeah. isn't it? Like yeah. one of the hardest parts of marriage is physically we are two separate people still, and we are both sinners still. And we both have this natural sin inclination to love ourselves more than the other person and to want to sacrifice for ourselves first and foremost before the other person. And yet what we are being called to by this is something better and higher and bigger. And I think for all of us, the application is about looking in, in, into our own lives and our own hearts and our own marriage and figuring out what the Holy Spirit is saying to us and revealing to us about our own tendency to think of ourselves as our own, yeah. not as belonging to Christ. Yeah, man. So um, we're an hour and 23 minutes into this, Taylor. Well, that was awesome. <laughs> um. So, yeah, gosh, um, hopefully, guys, that illuminates for you on some level what it looks like to work through this process. However, imperfectly, we've done it today. Um, and, you know, I think we've been a little scattered and all over the place to some extent, but observing, interpreting, and applying the Word of God, um, I, I don't know that I would say it's easy. It, it takes some time. Um but maybe not as much time as you might think, and it is one of those things where I think the more you do it, the better you're going to get at it, and um, the more you get familiar with the Scripture and familiar with the meta narrative of the Bible, as we've talked about, the easier some of these things are going to be. And um, yeah, uh, it's quite possible today that we've said some things that you have questions about or thoughts or comments about, and uh, of course, we would love to answer those things or hear from you guys. You can always email me, uh, weston at covenantshreveport.org, and um, be happy to uh, uh, look at that and respond to you. Um, but anyway, uh, let's stop there for today. Any final thoughts from you, Taylor, on this process or any of this? No, I want to echo that. I hope this starts some conversation, and if if not just with us, with somebody in our church or in your church, wherever you're listening. I, I hope this kind of thing does not happen in a vacuum. Don't let that be the case. Do this with other people. Yeah, yeah. Good stuff, man. All right. Um, we will see you guys next week. And next week will be our final episode in this course. Ooh. So we'll be uh, tying up some loose ends, hopefully. Um, and also looking at perhaps a few other things for you to consider as you study the scriptures. And so I've enjoyed it. Yeah, 12 weeks in um, how to study the Bible effectively. And so um, looking forward to completing this and then hopping into our next course. So we'll see you guys next week.